God, I pray, Lord, as we gather together, uh, Lord, as your church, uh, Lord, we find ourselves in the middle of uh, the busy uh, Christmas season. Uh, Lord, many of us probably feel worn out already, uh, weary, uh, perhaps discouraged, perhaps feeling the, uh, the lows uh, emotionally uh, that this season might bring. God, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would, Lord, meet us in that space. Lord, those of us who do feel those things, I pray that you would use your word today to encourage us, to exhort us, to fill us with hope. As we reflect on the coming of Jesus and, Lord, as we think about 1 Corinthians and all that you've, you've shown us over the last year and a half, God, I pray that you would, um, Lord, encourage our hearts to press into Jesus all the more during this season. Lord, help us to... Uh, worship Jesus who came as a baby, but he didn't stay as a baby, Lord, he grew, and Lord, he did something on the cross that has forever changed our lives. And so, Lord, help us to worship that baby Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. What started about a year and a half ago uh, is coming to a close today. We are finishing 1 Corinthians, and as we've shared, we have greatly benefited uh, from this study, probably in ways uh, that I did not even anticipate. You know, when I'm charting out where we're going and some of the sermons that we're going to be hitting, um, in God's sovereignty, he reveals things, he shows us things that, that I couldn't even dream uh, of happening. I'm just so thankful. And I, I recall uh, specifically sitting in a seminary class uh, at Southern, and I, uh, it was one of the preaching classes there, and, and the, the professor was encouraging us to understand that every verse, every book of the Bible is inerrant, it's beneficial, and, and he, but he was encouraging us, if you can, to hold off preaching through 1 Corinthians as long as possible. And he said that because 1 Corinthians is filled with landmines of controversial topics and issues. And he was saying, in order for your congregation to receive the messages and, and the passages here, you need to build trust. And, and I have felt that. I'm sure you have felt that as we have traveled through so many uh, difficult topics and issues, just letting the word do the work. It has been greatly challenging, but enormously uh, rewarding. And, and this morning, um, because we tend to forget the things that we should remember, and because we tend to remember the things that we should forget, I want to spend this morning just reviewing 1 Corinthians together. I, I want us to kind of uh, travel back and look at some of the main themes, some of the main takeaways as a way to cement these truths into our hearts. As I mentioned last week, we, we tend to finish books and then quickly move on to the next one without properly reflecting on what God has done. And I think reflection is such an undervalued but important discipline in our spiritual growth. One of the things that, that we try to do in my family almost every day is we, we sit around the dinner table and we talk about the, the highlights of the day, the, the low points of the day, and the middle points of the day. Uh, I know that the Hillens do high-low buffalo. Buffalo uh, represents what was the weirdest part of the day. We've, we've started to use that. And uh, there's one of our kids thinks that it's like the time to share your favorite animal, so she can't quite catch on yet. But high-low middle is really important because we're stopping and we're reflecting. We're, we're stopping and, and we're talking about what, what was important about the day. What was shaping about the day? What was the high point, low point? And, and we're trying to train our kids and really train us to stop and reflect, stop and remember rather than just go through the days and forget what happened in that day. And so 
I want to do that as a church, as it relates to 1 Corinthians today. And where I want to begin is just to remind us of why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, because this is really important, even for us, of why I selected 1 Corinthians as we've traveled through this the last year and a half. Paul, if you remember, was re, uh, receiving various reports from some of the leaders in the church. Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila, he even received a letter from the church, and it was outlining various issues, challenges, and questions that Paul now writes to them, and he answers. He provides uh, some instructions and what we have found is that this church was a beautiful mess. It's filled with problem after problem after problem. There are 15 main problems uh, that we identify, that we kind of walk through uh, throughout these 16 chapters. And it was filled with all kinds of issues. And what strikes me about these 15 problems is that these are all issues that were happening at one time. I mean, can you imagine having all of these problems in the church and, and as a pastor trying to navigate which problem to address first? But one of the things that we did over the last 16 chapters here in 1 Corinthians is we tried to identify what's the root issue underneath these problems, right? These 15 problems are really just symptoms of something that's happening in the hearts of the Corinthians. And so for us, we may not struggle with sacrificing food to idols like the Corinthians did, but we definitely struggle and found conviction with the problem underneath that issue, which is elevating one's own personal rights over loving others. And what we found with these 15 problems and, and this, this church here is that these issues are incredibly relevant for us, very practical. Some of the same issues that we struggle with on a daily basis. And, and yet when you think about this church, and this is what was so incredible to think about, all of those problems, but at the same time, this church was incredibly gifted. Chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says that this church didn't lack any spiritual gift. This church was intellectually sharp. They were financially blessed. There were clear and powerful demonstrations of the Holy Spirit throughout this church. And yet, they lacked a Christ-exalting, gospel-shaped love and unity. Dr. James Boyer describes uh, this letter this way, that if Paul were to write a letter to the evangelical Bible-believing churches of today in America, I believe it would be much like 1 Corinthians. Their world was like our world, the same thirst for intellectualism, the same permissiveness toward moral standards, the same fascination for the spectacular. And their church was like our churches, proud, affluent, materialistic, fiercely eager for intellectual and social acceptance by the world, doctrinally orthodox, but morally and practically conforming to the world. Look, we have needed 1 Corinthians not because we're exactly like them, but because we will become like them unless we heed Paul's instructions. And so the question is, is what were some of the main themes in Paul's instructions so the Corinthians would avoid that and so that we would avoid that? Well, there are four I'm gonna walk us through and kind of remind us as we do a bit of reflection today. Four main takeaways. The first one here 
is a, a, a huge theme that traveled throughout this letter was a gospel-producing spiritual maturity. This is one of the biggest issues throughout 1 Corinthians is that the church in Corinth thought that they were spiritually mature, and yet they weren't. And, and I'm just reflecting on that. Could there be a more dangerous place to be spiritually than thinking that you're at a certain place spiritually and you're really not? You lack that self-awareness. You lack kind of the awareness of having those blind spots in your life. That's exactly where the church in Corinth was. They had a, a misunderstanding of what it meant to be spiritually mature. They thought having these gifts or speaking in tongues or having influence is what being spiritually mature actually was. And so Paul seeks to correct them. Paul even gave his, his healthiest dose of sarcasm in chapter 4 as he's, as he's kind of calling them out, trying to, to bring an awareness of where they were spiritually. But one of the places that I want to start is chapter 3, verse 1. Right from the beginning here, Paul begins to expose the gap in the Corinthians' spiritual condition. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Notice, Paul calls them brothers, meaning they're Christians, but they're not spiritual. They're in Christ, but they're living by the flesh as infants. And so Paul is identi identifying for them that they're not very spiritually mature. Now again, remember what was going on in this church. They were gifted. They also had a lot of knowledge. Paul spent over a year and a half with them, teaching them the truth of God's word. The problem was, is that their character and their behavior was not matching their gifting and their knowledge, right? And, and this is the crux of what was going on here. The Corinthians struggled with the same thing that you and I struggle with from time to time, and that is having a spiritual gap issue. There's a gap between what we believe and our behavior. There's a distance between what we claim to believe and allowing our beliefs to shape the way that we live our lives. And spiritual maturity is really the process of closing those gaps more and more so that your beliefs shape your behavior. Now, what Paul did here in addressing this was very clever. The first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul only described two different categories of people. He talked about the natural person who did not have the spirit of God. That person is perishing. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, that the word of the cross is folly to them. Chapter 2, verse 14, they do not accept the things of the spirit. So that's one category of people. But then the second category of people is the spiritual person, the mature person, the, the person of chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. They have the mind of Christ. They have found their wisdom rooted in the cross of Christ. The problem with that is that not every single person fits into those two, one of those two categories. It's too simplistic. It's not Either you're the natural person who doesn't have the Spirit of God, or you have the Spirit of God and you're automatically mature. It's, it's too simplistic. So Paul 
introduces a third category here in chapter 3, verse 1. He introduces this third category as someone who is a Christian who has the Spirit of God, but is not mature, is not walking in wisdom, is walking by the flesh. Why does he add that third category for us? He adds that third category to guard some from despair and yet to warn others from presumption. He's doing two things here. He's giving hope to the spiritual struggler, but he's warning the casual drifter. Paul is saying here that, hey, if you have a spiritual gap in your spirituality, that does not automatically disqualify you from being a Christian but you should be warned and feel really the danger of living in those spiritual gaps because it's revealing a spiritual maturity issue. You're gonna have those gaps. I have those gaps. They reveal an area where we need further growth that it could even reveal. It could actually be evidence that there's a jam in your heart where the truths that you know about God are not funneling down into your heart, into your desires, shaping the way that you live your life. One of the results of this could be sin. And this is exactly what happened in Corinth. There was sin issue after sin issue after sin issue. Chapters two and three, there were divisions, fractures, jealousy, strife. Chapter five, a man was sleeping with his father's wife and the Corinthians tolerated this. Chapter six, there was more sexual morality, one specific example of sleeping with prostitutes. Chapter 10, they struggled with idolatry. Chapter 11, they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were getting drunk at this sacred ordinance. There's sin issue after sin issue after sin issue because they had these spiritual gaps. Now, what did Paul do to provide the solution here? What did he draw their attention to? Paul, time and time again, held up the gospel of Jesus Christ as the solution. Paul emphasized the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his sufficient work on the cross time and time again to close those gaps. Chapter one, verse 18, Paul talked about the cross is the power of God to which we are being saved. Chapter one, verses 23 and 24, Paul preached Christ crucified because Jesus is the power and the wisdom of God. Chapter two, verse two, Paul exalts Jesus Christ and him crucified as his primary message in his ministry. Chapter three, verse 11, Jesus Christ is the foundation by which we are to build our lives upon. Chapter six, verse 11, we were washed, sanctified, justified by Jesus Christ. Chapter six, verse 20, you were bought with a price, the price of Jesus's own blood, so flee sexual sin. Look, we're only six chapters in. Six chapters in, and Paul, again and again, more examples, Paul is pointing to Jesus and the cross of Jesus to bridge those gaps. Why? Because our spiritual maturity flows from the gospel, not the other way around. The gospel of Jesus produces growth in Jesus. The gospel not only saves us, it shapes us. It shapes the way that we are to live. Look, we, we do not clean ourselves up. We do not kick some bad habits and perform good deeds and then come to Jesus for salvation. No, that's not how it works. 
we come, actually Jesus comes to us, exactly as we are in our messiness, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our hopelessness, and his arms are open wide for all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus, and he forgives them, and he lavishes grace upon them in order to save them from their sins. The extravagance of that grace, the outrageousness of that grace changes us, matures us. It, it actually grows us. This is in part what I love about grace. This is what I find so amazing about grace, what Paul emphasized time and time again. When you understand all that Jesus has done for you, that he died for you, that he took away your sin, that he took your penalty, and you realize that it was all free. It wasn't because you earned it. You didn't do anything to deserve that. When that gets into your heart, grace not only brings forgiveness, grace transforms your behavior. Grace changes how you live your life. It's why Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Grace not only forgives, but it changes and it grows us and it bridges the gaps that we experience throughout the Christian life. So Paul is pounding that point time and time again throughout 1 Corinthians because they were missing the point of the cross of Jesus. So huge theme there, big, big takeaway for us. But not only that, the second main takeaway deals with unity. Paul, I think, does something very, very important, even for us today as we live in 2021, is he reminds us that our horizontal unity among believers flows out of our vertical unity in Jesus Christ, right? Unity was a huge problem for the Corinthians. In fact, it's the first issue that Paul addressed in chapter one. They were quarreling, they were fighting, they were arguing, they were jealous of one another, they were competing about who was more spiritual as a Christian. They even developed different groups or cliques or tribes around different spiritual leaders. And they were saying, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Christ. And you had this church who were basically made up of these different groups and these different tribes. This church argued just about everything. Their disunity was demonstrated in how they defined wisdom in chapters one and two, which spiritual leader they should follow in chapters three and four. They were suing one another in court, chapter six, making a mockery of the gospel. They disagreed about sacrificing food to idols and personal rights in chapters eight and nine. They were not unified in their spiritual gifts, elevating some gifts over others, chapters 11 and 12. They were making corporate worship a competition on who the best Christian was in chapter 14. All of these disagreements, all of these divisions, they were breaking down the unity that they were to experience, and it was creating a toxic culture and environment in this church. They weren't just disagreeing. It was deeper than that. It was shaping the culture of that group of believers. In fact, Gavin Ortland describes that it's one thing to disagree with another Christian. That is inevitable to anyone who thinks. It is another thing when our disagreement t 
takes on an attitude of contempt, condescension, or undue suspicion toward those with whom we disagree. And that, we can see, was settling in in this church. So what does Paul do? How do you address disunity and division? Paul appeals to them to remember what unites them. Paul in chapter 12, specifically in verse 12, emphasized you are part of one body in Christ. You're one, and yet there are various, different, diverse members of that one body. So Paul doesn't call them to uniformity. He doesn't call them to all look the same way. Paul calls them to remember that their vertical unity in Jesus, which is objective, meaning it's already been established, it's already been created by the blood of Jesus, Ephesians 2 makes that clear, but to allow your vertical unity in Jesus to shape how our horizontal unity with other believers is to be experienced. This is powerful because culture now would say to build unity around where you have differences. But Paul is, is encouraging, in fact, exhorting us that the solution in dealing with disagreements so they don't become prideful quarreling issues or, or division is to actually come back to the gospel. That when we realize that Jesus is what unites us, that what we have in Jesus is what we have in common, that actually changes the way we handle our disagreements. Not that we all think the same way in our disagreements, but when you understand how patient Jesus has been to you, you can be patient with others with whom you disagree with. When you realize how compassionate Jesus has been to you, you can be compassionate to others you disagree with. When you understand how gracious Jesus has been to you, you can be gracious to others with whom you disagree with. See, it's Jesus who brings all of us who are different, and he unites us in his name. Like, you look around in this room, we are not a group of people who share in the same age. We don't have the same backgrounds. We don't, we don't participate kind of in the same hobbies or activities. We're not part of the same socioeconomic status. We, we don't share the same ethnicities or spiritual maturity levels. But Jesus did not die in order to make us look all the same way. Those differences do not magically disappear when we become a Christian. But Jesus died in order to take a group of people who are diverse and bring unity in Jesus alone. That for us as a church, what unifies us is when we understand that we are a blood-bought people who share in common the most important and the deepest reality of who we are, that we have been redeemed by Jesus. And we are called to build our unity around that and not our differences. So we might be diverse, but we are unified in Jesus Christ. See, one of the most important questions that the Bible answers for us is how can you have a group of believers who disagree with each other, how can they actually stay unified? 
Romans 14 addresses it. 1 Corinthians addresses it. What the Bible does not say is for the people who disagree with one another to go and, and attend a different church down the road. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say to then change your church to make it more comfortable for one group of people at the extent of others. The Bible doesn't say that either. The Bible encourages us, you go to Romans 14, all throughout 1 Corinthians, when you have disagreements, it's to come back to Jesus and to build your unity around him, not your differences. That that should be the focus of our unity. And Paul called them back to Jesus in the gospel time and time again. It's a huge theme throughout 1 Corinthians. Now, not only that, two more here that we see that's really important is that love should be the primary marker and motivator for our spiritual maturity. So the first takeaway is understanding that spiritual, what spiritual maturity should actually be and how we should grow in spiritual maturity. Here, we find that love is this motivator, that love becomes the primary indicator of one's spiritual condition. This is important because it's not giftedness, it's not knowledge, it's not influence, it's actually love. Chapter eight, verse one, Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but it's love that builds up. It's love that actually matures and grows us. And what we took away from that is that you can actually have all the head knowledge in the world, and yet if you lack love, you're really not that spiritually mature. Now, of course, one of the highlights in 1 Corinthians is chapter 13. This is the love chapter. This is like the most popular section in all of 1 Corinthians. It's on coffee mugs, it's on t-shirts, it's on tattoos. I mean, it's commonly used in, in weddings all of the time. But so often, we understand chapter 13 detached from its context. We read it and we think, man, Paul, that is beautiful penmanship, stunning word choice. And we, and we think that this is kind of a cute description of love that's meant to make us feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. That's not Paul's intent at all. Understanding it in its context, you understand that passage to be actually a rebuke. It is a form of conviction and exhortation to a church that lacked love. So Paul argues for the superiority of love above all in measuring one's spiritual condition. This is really important to clarify, how are you doing spiritually? You get asked that question all the time, don't you? You're grabbing coffee with a friend, and they ask you, how are you doing with the Lord? How are you doing spiritually? What do we tend to do? Where do we go in answering that question? We start to highlight our time with the Lord and his word. We start to maybe talk about other things. Do we ever go to how we're loving other people? Like that is, for Paul, what he's been elevating as the primary indicator of our spiritual condition. But Paul did more than that with love. He not only elevated it in measuring our spiritual condition, but he defined it. This is important because what's the world doing around us? The world is redefining love according to whatever you want it to be. However you feel is basically what you want love to be and it goes against what the Bible defines and describes as what love actually should be. So you go to chapter 13, verses four through eight, and we saw the multifaceted aspects 
of biblical love. Love is a working, active dynamic, not just something that gives you warm, fuzzy feelings. Love is a choice. Love is an action. Love is a servant of the will, not a victim of the emotions or having the perfect set of circumstances. This is important because love is the answer to just about every one of the Corinthians' problems. Love is the answer to their quarreling, their pride, their tribalism, their lawsuits against one another, understanding gender roles and marriage and singleness. Love is the answer to them elevating their personal rights above others. Love is what should shape how they gather for corporate worship, how they use their spiritual gifts, how they participate in the Lord's Supper. And the descriptions that Paul laid out there in verses four through seven is so helpful for us knowing what to pursue, what love actually is. But one of the big points that we tried to emphasize is that it is impossible for you and for me to love others the way that we should unless you first understand and receive God's love for you. Why? Because It's impossible to give to others what you have not first received from God. And I think one of the big reasons why we fail to love others the way that we should according to chapter 13 is because we have not been on a consistent, regular basis, been captured with God's love for us. This is the solution, I think, to, to free us from the comparison trap, where what keeps us from loving others is we're comparing our lives with other people. We're comparing how this person loves me, and so I'm going to love them like that. It, it frees us from that. It, this also frees us from being enslaved to our feelings as far as who we love and when we love, that I'm only going to love others if I feel like it or if it's convenient or if the circumstances in my life is, is perfect. I think this also frees us from being selfish with our love. That I'm, gonna, I'm only gonna love others based on what I get in return. See, the solution to, I think, all of those problems and what's so powerful when you understand biblical love is the answer's actually found within Jesus. Like, this, this is not a call to, to kind of this moralistic performance for God. Like, to actually love others the way that we should begins and it actually ends with Jesus, not looking from within. That you understand that Jesus is who perfectly embodies all of those characteristics in chapter 13 towards you. Like that's where it begins. Remember the exercise we did? We changed out love for Jesus and it's all true. So Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, understanding that Jesus, all those things and more towards you, once you understand that, you can then begin to live out that kind of biblical love towards others. Look, I, 
I love Romans 5.8. I try to quote that as much as I can to you guys, that God demonstrated his great love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. I love that verse. That verse is so important because what that tells us is that at our very worst is when God put on display his great love for us. That God sent Jesus to die for us, not because of us, but despite us. Not because we have anything to offer, not because he's looking down thinking, man, I really need John Smith on on my team, on the Christian team. He's got a lot to offer here. No, no, no. It's despite all of your sinfulness because it's God's nature to love is why he sent Jesus to die for us. It's so powerful because the gospel declares that even though Jesus is perfect in his righteousness, perfectly blameless, he died for sinners. He died for his enemies. He died for you and for me. And not just to forgive us, not just to accept us into his family forever, but in order to put on display what love should be so that your heart is filled with his love to now give to other people. It's powerful when our love is actually gospel-centered and biblically defined. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. Well, this takes us to our last, I think, main takeaway in this letter, and it has to do with eschatology. You know, I couldn't get up here without talking about eschatology. The Christian life must be eschatologically shaped. Eschatology, if you missed that series with us, means the study or the doctrine of the last days or the end times. And the reason why we spent so much time talking about eschatology is because 1 Corinthians is largely shaped by Paul's eschatology. It's actually undergirding almost all of his arguments. I'm not going to walk through all of these verses, but you see Paul's eschatology all over the place. In fact, it's almost in every chapter. Something pops up where he refers to something that's happening in the last days or something to refer to Jesus' return or the judgment of God. Again, almost every chapter is filled with his eschatology. Why? Why does Paul talk about his eschatology so much? It's because Paul understood that your belief about the future impacts how you live right now in the present. And so he's He's undergirding all of his arguments based on what he knows to be true about the future. And one thing about Paul's eschatology is he believed in an already but not yet tension, meaning that we experience the fullness of God's promises already here, right now, but not yet fully. For example, salvation. We are saved but not yet fully because we're not glorified yet. Glorification, consummation is a huge aspect of salvation that's yet to be fully realized. Now, for the Corinthians, though, they possessed an over-realized eschatology. One of their main problems that was then producing all of these other issues is they believed that all of God's promises were fully fulfilled and fully realized now. And we we kind of address some of those issues here. And and that's why Paul takes them back and corrects their eschatology. And one thing that we talked about is that eschatology has not been given to us as a topic for debate. Eschatology is given to us 
It's intended to fill us with an unshakable hope in the one, Jesus, who promises to make all things right and who has a, a plan to do just that. That's why we have eschatology. It's to remind us that the future is actually secure. It's certain that the Bible is filled with all of these promises about Jesus's global kingdom, about his unshakable reign, about his endless dominion in order to free us up to live lives of boldness, courage, fully sacrificing and surrendering whatever the cost in order to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's why we have eschatology. It's practical in nature, not just supposed to fill us with charts and dates and predictions about the future. That eschatology actually frees us to put to death sin and idols, to be willing to be rejected by the world, to sacrifice at all costs. Why? Because we know who wins in the end. And it's not Satan, it's not death, it's not sin, it's not the government or any nation on the earth right now. It's not your fears. It's not doubts. It's not anything else. Jesus wins in the end. And understanding that you are a citizen in King Jesus' kingdom, which means that you're more than a conqueror, that Jesus has secured your place in his kingdom for all of eternity. And when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things right. He is going to perfectly reign with justice and power and righteousness forevermore. That's what we have to look forward to, that we'll be with Jesus forever and ever. And that's so important because understanding that impacts the way that we handle all of these issues and all these issues that the Corinthians struggled with. I think Paul connects all these issues to the future because not thinking about the future will cause us to think that this is our home. I don't know if you, sh I struggle with that. I, I get into life, I'm so busy, three little kids, trying to, to serve a church and just do life, pay the bills, do the dishes, take out, I mean, all these things. And you get sucked into thinking that this is all there is. I know, I know heaven's real, but Man, my time and my attention and my affections, how much of it is placed on this life right here? And I don't know if you can relate with that, but sadly, I think we can fall into that thinking that we're so consumed with this world that we've lost interest and desire for the world that is to come. And I find this so convicting. A.W. Tozer says that the weakness of so many modern Christians is that they feel too much at home in the world. Yeah, I hope that the emphasis on eschatology was helpful for you. Man, it, it kicked my rear end. It was convicting for me. I, I, I found myself finding all of these truths to be so, so very convicting. Because for me, as a young pastor, I need to be reminded that this is not my home. I'm not building for my kingdom. I'm not trying to advance me. I'm not trying to protect me. I'm a citizen of King Jesus, and I serve him. And I think understanding that this is not my home, I'm just passing through. It helps disentangle my heart from this world. It breaks that enchantment that we can have with this world, and it reminds me to look beyond this world 
and to long for the life that is to come with Jesus and his people forevermore. I think it's been so, so very helpful for us as a church. Well, as we say goodbye to 1 Corinthians, we do so with a heart of gratitude, so thankful for all the Lord has shown us, all of these truths and more, so we can say alongside of Paul to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love, and let the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, and we are so, so very thankful for all that you've shown us. God, we do not take for granted the power of your word. We do not take for granted the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts. Lord, those who try to study your word without you, Lord, might be filled with head knowledge, but they cannot apply what you have to say to them. So, Lord, we're thankful to feel conviction. We're thankful to, to be challenged by your word. God, we thank you that you, you conform us to Jesus through the preaching and through the receiving of your word. We thank you, God, for the promise that your word will not return void. So God, accomplish your purpose that you have for us and our church. We pray for the glory and beauty of Jesus' name. In his name I pray, amen.